Watermark's Church Leadership Podcast, a conversation with church leaders for church leaders. Today, we're talking about adaptive leadership with Todd Bolsinger. Well, welcome, friends. Today, we've got a great interview with Todd Bolsinger. And Todd is the Senior Congregational Strategist and Associate Professor of Leadership Formation at Fuller Seminary. He's also the co-founder of A.E. Sloan Leadership, which helps faith leaders thrive as change leaders. Todd is the author of two books, Canoeing the Mountains and Tempered Resilience. And we will link to both of those books in the show notes, as well as give you some notes that John Cox, our executive pastor, made on those books and distributed to our staff, uh, just so you can get some of the, uh, the big ideas there. Uh, so he talks a lot about adaptive change and how leaders are formed during those times. And so Todd's been very, very helpful to us at Watermark the last year or so as we've navigated some of our own uh, transitions and a, a lot of change. And we found some of his frameworks, some of his big ideas really, really helpful, so much so that we had him come in and speak with our staff. And so he spent uh, the morning with our senior leadership team, and then he also spent some time with our staff. And we thought that you know the conversation was so good that we wanted to let you in on some of that. So we came right up to the podcast studio as soon as he was done with our staff. And I just wanted to introduce this one idea that change is coming and we need to be ready for it and we need to lead well through it. There's uh, a lot of how that Todd talks about. You can find that in his books, but I just wanted to leave you uh, with a what uh, that's coming. So please enjoy the interview with Todd Bolsinger. Todd, thanks so much for being with us today. We left a really special time with our staff. So uh, you came on campus this morning, met with our senior staff, uh, and then uh, we just had about an hour and a half with our entire staff. And uh, I saw just uh, just notes being taken at a speed that generally does not happen uh, in that room. So it was really fun to watch them interact. We had some good Q&A. And I, here's where I thought we'd start. Uh, what I wanted to do initially was give you kind of, you know, 10 softball questions and do a really long form uh, interview, which I thought would be very fascinating. I think you're get, we're going to best serve this audience by you sharing a story that you just mm-hmm. shared uh, with us. And so you shared this story. And just to look around the room, you had people's mouths open. Um, they stopped taking notes. And they were as dialed in as, as really I ever uh, saw them. So uh, if you would, I know it's a story you probably told lots. And I don't know if you can still be excited about it. But if you could, I think that would uh, be incredibly helpful to the audience here. So uh, welcome. And uh, do you mind just we'll just jump right into it? I'll be glad to do That'd so. That'd be great. Thanks. Thanks. That's great. So um, the story you want me to revisit is actually a really powerful story in my own life. And it's a story that comes out of history. Um, on August 12th, 1805, Meriwether Lewis took a sip of water out of a stream that was on the border of Montana and Idaho. Uh, Meriwether Lewis and his partner, William Clark, had led the Corps of Discovery. It started in St. Charles, Missouri. Its goal w- was to find a water route that would connect the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean. Um, they believed, as everybody who was of European des- descent believed at that time, that there was, had to be some water route that they could connect Europe to Asia. This was kind of at the center of the economic strategy of Europe for 300 years. It's way easier to take raw material over water than it is over land. And so they were sent by Thomas Jefferson with their core of discovery to discover this water route. So after going 18 months upstream, up the Missouri River, starting in Missouri, ending here at this little this little spring that they drank out of, they believed they were going to take their canoes, go a half a day, and they were going to put them in a river on the other side, Mm -hmm. and they were going to go downstream all the way to the Pacific Ocean. So after 18 months of paddling upstream, they are now going to go downstream. And everybody knew this this route was there. Everybody knew this water route was there. They just needed to figure out who would find it. 
And what they did, of course, is they walked up the side of the Lemhi Pass. They looked over and found the Rocky Mountains. <laughs> and not just like this is where the podcast puts us at a bit of a disadvantage. So you could Google that. And if you think a mountain uh, from that vantage point, it's kind of 14ers. Yeah. As far as you can see. Yeah, 300 miles yeah. is what it is. Yeah. It's 300 miles of mountains. Yeah. Yeah. And, the, and, the, and the reason I always, always like to tell this story is for any of us who've been in the West, if you've, yeah, you know, I'm talking with you guys in Texas, everybody in Texas. We are, we Colorado, are, the, we are the West. Right, right, right. Anybody who's been there thinks, oh, w- w- how are they surprised by that? Well, just remember this. The mental model of everybody in the East is that a mountain was something that you would see in the, say, Shenandoah Valley, like the Smoky Mountains. So rounded mountains that are three, 4,000 mm. feet. You can almost imagine taking a canoe over them and find another river over there. To have this thing that is completely different than they expected, to realize that it was this giant disruption, that geographically what it meant is Everything in the future was completely different than everything in the past. (laughs) Everything in front of them was completely different than everything behind them. They were expert water guys. And now they had to figure out how they were going to canoe over mountains. And they ask, the question is, how do you canoe over mountains? And the answer is, you don't. (laughs) Well, what was there? Do you know the story? Do you know what what that conversation was at that moment when they looked over and saw, hey, this is materially different. Because what was what's the quote about how easy this was going to be? Well, well, the, the 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 part about this is so interesting is they believed that um, they were t- they'd asked the Mandan tribe, um, is there a we know there's a river over there. Can we find it? The Mandan tribe said they'd spent the winter with the Mandan tribe. The Mandan tribe said, yes, there's a river over there. You're going to have to go over mountains. And they went, oh, mountains, mountains. Yeah. We're from uh, Virginia. Hills. We're good at mountains, hills. right? Their mental model was of something completely different. So when they stepped over the Lemhi Pass, Meriwether Lewis writes in his journal, and we proceeded on. But one of the <laughs> men wrote, these were the most terrible mountains we ever beheld. Okay, there we go. <laughs> and what you have is because you realize, I'm, I, I'm thinking that's had to be an enlisted man who thought his job was going to be to carry those canoes yeah. over those mountains. And the reason why this is an illustration is so powerful to me is I think this is the moment that the church is in right here because of a rapidly changing world and culture, because of COVID, because of all the things we're in. We're in this place where the world in front of us is completely different than the world behind us. Mm-hmm. And that most of us are really, really good at navigating rivers. And we're just now discovering that the terrain is not about rivers, it's about mountains. Yeah. And we're gonna have to discover whole new ways of leading or we're gonna go back. Right, that's right. And that really, rather than um, pepper you with questions, yeah. I, that I think is the most helpful thing that you that you could say to yeah. this audience here, rather than long, really long podcasts, just to say that like we we're standing on this pass, looking at a bunch of fourteeners. It's different than we thought, and and we've not been trained. Right, we've never succeeded in this landscape. Uh, we've succeeded in you know uh, canoeing and, right. and water, but we we are not going yeah. back. Yeah. We're not going back. And I go ahead. Well, and the hardest part is there's two parts that happen at this point. One is, um, you know, I always think about this. Every single person, if you think of every church or every church leader, particularly sitting at this precipice, they got a decision to make. One group says, oh, what we're really about is canoeing. We're not about exploring. We're about canoeing. We should make we should basically do everything we can to uh, foster the great tradition of canoeing. We should go back and do circles and tell stories about canoeing. And we should take people on canoe trips and we should teach canoeing. The question is, are we about canoeing? 
There's another group that's saying, I don't know what we're going to do, but we're staying right here. Mm-hmm. Right. I had a friend of mine who uh, is pastors in Colorado and he said, you know, Colorado is Denver, Colorado was founded by the people who bravely p- crossed the plains. And then one morning looked up and said, right here, far we're, enough. <laughs> like, we're we're not going any further. We're good. Right. And that's where I think a lot of churches are right now. But or there's another question to ask, which is, so what if we're actually what we're called to isn't about water, but it's about exploring? Yeah. Yeah. What if it's about moving forward? And what if we could believe that the, what we're supposed to do is be about discovering the future and how, la- how that discovery of this new terrain is going to require us to change? Yeah. And I think that's the moment that most of us are in as leaders. Yeah. So how would you talk about that? If that is, <clears throat> so if we are explorers, what is, yeah. you know, that's what, who Lewis and Clark ultimately were, which the, what, what a name core of discovery. Mm-hmm. The, do we still have that in the, in the U S <laughs> yeah. do we have, do we have that anymore as a, uh, no, that was just a one, one time thing. And there's, and it's a, and it's a name that's fraught because, you know, of course, one of the things we have to just say right off the bat is that they were discovering what was new to them. It wasn't new to the people who sure. were living there. Right. Obviously. And so, and we say that because what's important to recognizes this is kind of the world we're in. As Christians, we got into a world where we believe God's already at work, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Just because we're discovering it doesn't mean that God's not there. And it doesn't mean that there's already good people there. And there's people in front of us who are waiting to greet us. That become, So what it requires is a humility. I mean, Meriwether Lewis was tutored by the president of the United States in the White House. But when he stepped over the Lemhi Pass, he was lost. Yeah. So what he had to so at that moment what we realize is that what adventure requires is that we first and foremost become humble learners. We start listening to people, we start learning, we start acknowledging that we're not experts that our expertise in the past isn't gonna help us. Um, we start recognizing that we can't just try harder at the things we used to do. I, I always say to folks that I'm consulting, I work with churches all over the country, you know the goal isn't to paddle harder. Uh, you don't paddle harder when you're when you've run out of water in the river. You'll just exhaust yourself. Right, right. So instead, it's making a shift of perspective, of openness, of now of exploring, of learning. And for me, as a Christian, this really does take me back to the basics of what it means to be a follower of Christ. I mean, to be a follower of Christ before I'm a leader, I'm a learner, because before I was a pastor, I was a disciple. And disciple mm. and learning is the same Greek root word. And mm-hmm. that's and that's mm. really means that we go back to our most fundamental conviction that we're supposed to be learning as we go, open to the transformation that God wants to have to bring in our lives. Yeah, that's our exploration. That's yeah. who we are. Yeah. Make disciples, be disciples. Yeah. Uh, that's ultimately, and some of these are just forms and functions that will... Uh, or so the forms anyway that will that will change yeah. and um, but yeah I think I think Todd uh, there's still a denial mm-hmm. you know we're, we here we are we're in January uh, 2022 and the staff you know before we were together we all took a, a test I, I, no one thought we would still be here yeah. you know um, and there repeatedly what I hear is um, from leaders is when we go back um, once this blows over and our numbers come back and everyone wants to like. And, and I would just say, and I think you, you probably can say it more eloquently, is we're not going yeah. back. It, it, yeah. By back, I mean uh, the same size, yeah. uh, the same, some of the same uh, approaches are mm-hmm. as effective. Um, we are just not. Now, I do think there'll be some churches that kind of stay the course and everything stays the same. Um, and they will attract all of the uh, people who leave the smaller churches that, that close. And so there will be a false sense of uh, we're still growing and great things are happening and budgets are going up. And all that will be is a consolidation uh, move. But I think fundamentally we are at this pass. And um, 
because we're explorers, we haven't run out of things to do and our, our mission isn't over. These, these could be really, really mm-hmm. fun times. Yeah. Um, but if you can just acknowledge that, I don't think we're going, I don't yeah. think we're going back. Now I could be wrong. And if you're, if I'm dead wrong and in mm-hmm. three years, everything is exactly the same at your church. Um, and it's only better. It's got more zeros behind it. Next time you're in Dallas, I'll buy you I'll, I'll buy you dinner anywhere you want, uh, but I'll take the other bet, um, mm-hmm. the other side of that bet all day long, because I just don't think we are, and we need to be thinking about um, how do we go forward uh, from here. So you've got lots of great models, lots of great mm-hmm. frameworks. Um, how, what, what would you say to leaders? Mm-hmm. We're at the pass. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never been here before. Definitely wasn't trained. Yeah. Um, don't know anyone else mm-hmm. who's come back from this uh, land yet, and yet it's my job to t- take my people through this. So. Yeah. Give me a framework. Mm-hmm. Help help me think about this. Yeah. So so the thing that recognizes this moment is um, is that we were not trained for the land we're going into. Yeah. We were trained for the past. The great temptation, as one of my mentors said, is that at a moment of crisis, you don't rise to the occasion. You default to your training. Yeah. So what most of us do is we double down on what we're good at, and we keep trying to do it harder. And and so going back to the past isn't just about fear. It's about familiarity. Like, I know what to do. You know, if there's a problem, I know what to do. We do what we've always done. The problem is we're in a totally different day, right? So canoeing harder is not a good answer when you face mountains. So you start asking ourselves the question, if we're in a brand new day, a new world where the world is really different, where um, there's accessibility to lots of things that will enhance your life without having to be part of a church, uh, where there's lots of conversations about spirituality, where there's lots of conversations about um, people being more polarized by politics or division, or, I mean, you start finding yourself realizing that in this really different world, we're going to have to lead differently. And what it requires is a different kind of leadership. Hmm. And that leadership um, is called adaptive leadership. It's, yep. it's at the center of the work that I do. And adaptive leadership is really how you lead when somebody asks you the question, so what, do you, what are we going to do? What should we do? And your honest answer is, I don't know. So good. And this is one of the hardest places. It's the most vulnerable place for a leader because people expect you to be the expert, right? You, most people became a leader because they were an expert at something mm-hmm. that was not leading, right? You're the best preacher. We make you the leader, the pastor. You're the best program person. We put you in part of the charge of the team. You're the best singer. We make you the worship leader, right? Like it happens in business all the time. You know, the salesperson who's really great, who becomes a sales always. manager, always. right? So you recognize this is one of the challenges of leadership is that you actually don't learn leading until you're leading. Leaders leaders are formed in the leading, which means you're formed in the moment of vulnerability where you have to actually take people one step at a time into uncharted territory, learning as you go which means you've got to be humble and open and open to learning as you go, open to learning lessons, open to failure, to experimenting, to trying to kind of move forward and discovering as we go. And then, so adaptive leadership is built upon the understanding that um, that leadership requires learning. The second thing is that it, it's built on the reality that leadership in uncharted territory always results in loss. Hmm. Yeah. If what do you, you mean by that? Yeah. If you built these canoes with your bare hands and you thought you were on a canoe trip yeah. and you were recruited because you're the best canoeer I know, yeah. and all of a sudden you find yourself facing the Rocky Mountains, we're going to burn your canoes. You're no longer the expert canoeer. You're now just some dude who carries luggage and you're no longer paddling. You're walking and you didn't sign up for this. So you have a decision to make. Am I an explorer or am I in a canoeer? 
And what's interesting about this, this is the moment when I talk to, to churches where I say, what this moment does is it makes you ask yourself your questions about your deepest values. If our deepest value is creating a religious product that, uh, that our audience likes and comes to so it can keep growing, well, then what we should do is figure out whatever's going to make them happy and keep giving it to them. Yep. Yep. But if our deepest value is to transform the world into the reign of God. It's to be the answer to Jesus's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. And that happens through a group of people who are being transformed into the likeness of Christ, disciples. Well, then the question is, what does discipleship require of us? And what does mission require of us? So what is the transformation that requires of us? And usually it requires leaving some things behind. Loss. Like leaving behind your nets Mm -hmm. or leaving behind your family or leaving behind your power, your privilege, your prestige, your, Jesus even talked about leaving behind your life. Yeah, And it's, I think it's a moment for us to acknowledge that the leadership needed is gonna re- require learning, it's gonna result in loss, and it's gonna require leaders who demonstrate that through their own learning and their own willingness to confront their own losses. Yeah, that's good, well, in the loss, yeah, lead, uh, lead a congregation mm-hmm. through loss. Yeah, and oh. People, people who have bled, they have given, they have yeah. prayed for this thing that yeah. was, uh, you know, the centerpiece, it was the, the crown jewel of the yeah. church, and it's, it's not going to be yeah. part of the future yeah. anymore. So, so I work at a seminary, and one of the things that we recognize is seminary education is changing dramatically, yeah. like less, people are coming to seminaries to get their degrees. Many of places is because there's lots of churches out there that are hiring young staff and saying, we'll educate you as you go. And all of a sudden now there's this giant challenge. So I have this story that actually the true story that happened to me is I was called to work at Fuller to to, uh, develop a new thing we called our Fuller Leadership Platform. It's now called Fuller Equip. And it's this online platform. And the whole point is to deliver resources to people who don't need our degrees and who don't want to take on more debt, but they still want to learn and grow and use our research and find the resources. So so when we started talking about this, a really wise person I know who's a lawyer who's in Silicon Valley said, you know that trying to do a startup in a traditional institution usually doesn't go well, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And like there's, there's all kinds of stories in business about like brand new ideas that got, you know, torpedoed. Like, you know, the fact that Xerox had the color graphic interface that Apple used years before That's Apple right. used right. it, or that uh, Polaroid um, and Kodak both had capacity for digital film way before um, it, that became popular. Uh, the famous one is the Saturn car that, G- that GM was going to use that it was going to be much more like the cars of today in terms of being really efficient and fuel efficient. Well, within a few years, they'd sold that thing off for parts. Like traditional institutions tend not to like right. innovation. It's good. So this guy from Silicon Valley says to me, you should probably come and meet with some folks from Silicon Valley and they can give you some advice. So I do, right? So I go meet with a group of guys all from Silicon Valley and, and all those famous companies and venture capitalists and uh, McKinsey trained consultants. And they said, here, Todd, give us your pitch about the new thing you want to do. And I said, great. And I launched into my pitch. And they got done and they said, you've been doing that around the seminary a lot, haven't you? And I said, well, yeah, <laughs> I, have. I have to, I have to hire man. people. Yeah. I got to, you know, I got to get people on board. And he looked at me and they said, Todd, you just gave us a long pitch about how we need to bring, do this new thing to help the seminary survive. Todd, nobody cares if your institution survives. They only care if your institution cares about them. Hmm. So how would you change if you started listening to the people you needed to serve and changed for them? 
You see, the default yeah, behavior for most really of us good. is to try to change really our organizations good. for our stakeholders. And we've got to actually acknowledge that our members need to change for the sake of our mission. Yeah. And that's a different kind of transformation. Yeah. And that's going to require, that's going to feel like loss. You're, you're not the center of what we're talking about. Yeah. You're part of the mission. You're not the mission. Yeah. That's good. Just as an aside, uh, I was in a seminary. I will not mention the name. And golly, this has been so long. I'm getting so old. Uh, I'm going to put it at over 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And the president stood up and said, we will never do online learning. Yeah. That will never happen um, from this campus. You know, and his point was, it was relationships where yeah. uh, transformation was happening. And um, I think that's far and away for this institution, their biggest uh, platform now. Yeah. But just, uh, you know, uh, he would have stood in that, in that instance, back to the analogy, would have stood at the pass yeah. and said, why, well, let's go, let's just stay, let's go yeah. back yeah. To, uh, to the river. And it became apparent to everyone else. Now we got, we have to push through here do something we've never done before, uh, figure it out. You yeah. talk a lot about just kind of trying small and, and models, uh, which I think is a really helpful framework. Mm -hmm. You don't have to know all the way to the Pacific. You just got to figure out how to get over the next pass yeah. and uh, what that would look like. Well, and one of the parts that, that you think about this is, um, you know, you're, it, it, the seminary professor, I totally understand. I was telling your group earlier that I did my doctoral dissertation on Christian community. Mm -hmm. I'm a guy who really believes that spiritual formation happens in Christian community. That's what my life is about. My first book is called It Takes a Church to Raise a Christian. Um, so I'm now in a place where I'm asking the question that the world has changed, technology has changed. What could you do with technology that's about Christian community? And the answer is you can actually do a lot. Mm -hmm. And that so we start thinking about the fact that we thought we were in the campus business or the church building business or the gather people here at an event business, not we're in the discipleship business. Our work and our mission is to disciple people. So the example I, I use all the time is, you know, if we only had a New Testament example of somebody being formed by technology over distance, we might feel more comfortable with it. Like the New Testament. Mm. Paul's letters were letters sent by a follower, Timothy, or somebody who would go to a local area and they would read the letter and they would take that wisdom and live it out in their local area. But Paul was doing it from a distance using the technology called the Roman roads yeah. that made it possible yeah. to travel. Yeah. And so you start realizing we need to start thinking more wisely about what never changes. And that's usually a much smaller thing than any of us want to admit. Mm. And how can we then begin to, in a healthy, faithful way, adapt so that we can lead people into a future so that what's most important about us endures into the future? I love it. Um, gosh, so again, I, I want to chase rabbits, and I think, uh, I think it's, it's best to keep it, uh, keep it focused here. And we talked about being a learner. That's what, that's what it's going to take. It's going to create a sense of loss. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing you talk about um, is sabotage yeah. uh, a lot. And, um, and you can, every time this has come up uh, today, you've talked about this and you've talked about leaders coming to you and your countenance yeah. changes. And I take it to mean that you, you're feeling what these leaders feel when they come and talk to you about uh, is it this category of sabotage. So yeah. what do you mean by that? Yeah. How does it show up? And then what do we yeah. do about it? Well, one of the principles about adaptive leadership is that people don't resist change. They resist loss. That's good. And when you're going to take people through loss, they begin to resist you. 
And what they want is they want to get back to what's familiar. I always tell people, remember that um, the root word for family and familiar are the same root word. Hmm. So when a person's in an unfamiliar place, they feel like they've been orphaned. Like they, they're not stubborn. They're anxious. They're fearful. Yeah. And what people do who are anxious or fearful is they try to stop the change, believing that they're doing the right thing. So one of the parts that happens is that a guy named Ed Friedman, who's a rabbi and uh, now deceased, but it was a what was an expert in this used to say is um, the most important aspect of leadership is preparing for and faithfully dealing with sabotage, hmm. because sabotage happens 100% of the time. He would go so far as to say, if you're going to make a change. You can't consider your change successful until you've made the change, then survive the sabotage, <laughs> then you're successful. Yeah. So I always say, like, as a Presbyterian, um, you know, we have a tendency to believe that if you get a properly called vote that has one vote more than the majority using Robert's Rules of Order, you just had Pentecost. Yeah. Like, that's yeah. the best thing ever. <laughs> we got the votes. We made the change. Here we go. What you need to realize is right after that vote happens, right after that play place where everybody says, I, we're going to do it, is when the sabotage steps in. That's when people go, well, I don't think we thought about it. Maybe we should go back. Maybe we should slow down. Maybe, maybe we don't, maybe we really don't need to find a water route. Maybe we don't really need to explore. And what happens in that moment is it's the most soul sucking thing for leaders. Um, I, I realized when I was traveling around talking about canoeing the mountains, every single place I went, they would say, hey, here's what we'd like you to talk about in the book. The one thing everybody asked for was the, was the chapter on sabotage. And so what I always teach people to remember is this. Sabotage is normal. Yeah. It's yeah. natural. Feels personal. Yeah, it feels, it feels unique. personal. It feels unique. It's not. It is, sabotage is not the bad things that evil people are doing. It's so good. It is the human things that anxious people are doing. And if you need help with this, go back and read the story of the Exodus. Where, you know, right <laughs> after they finally Absolutely. right cross the Red Sea, like they're looking at the Red Sea, the chariots are coming. They're all saying, to mo- they, you know, they're caught between the Red Sea and the chariots and they do what the church and the people of God have always done. They blame the leader. Moses, this is your idea. You brought us out here to die. We just wanted some more bricks, some more straw for our bricks. Yes. This is your idea. You know, were there not enough graves in Egypt? He says, stand firm and see what God will do. And God does, delivers them. They end up on the other side, ready to face the wilderness toward the promised land. And six weeks after the greatest miracle until the resurrection, six weeks later, they're saying, you know, maybe we should go back. Yeah. Yeah. And this is normal. It's natural. It's to be expected. And that is the biggest challenge for leaders is that sabotage. I had one leader look at me and say, um, one of my guys I coached said to me, uh, Todd, I'm, I think I can learn to lead change, you know, with your coaching. I'm not sure I can survive it. Huh. And another one of my co- uh, clients said to me, uh, Todd, my inbox is a terrible place to be. Every decision I make, somebody's mad at me. He, he literally yeah. said to me yeah. just two weeks ago, he said, I really thought over the last year that everybody in this church was mad at me and angry at me. Um, it's It's remarkable how much... personal pain we feel when we're disappointing people and we've got to help them develop the resilience to go through that. Yeah. I love it. Which is, um, another topic, another book that would be, uh, would be great. Um, so we will, as I mentioned earlier, we will, um, 
include some notes here on uh, both of Todd's uh, books, all of them which are excellent. Um, there's some really good frameworks, some really good um, kind of phrases I think that you can lock in and be ready for uh, to just to pull out next time you know, you're in front of someone uh, who is trying to sabotage you or mm-hmm. the new vision and you're going to want to think they are evil and you can look at them and go, nope, they're just anxious. Yeah. This is what anxious people do, not what evil people do. There's lots of really, really good gold uh, in there. Um, but I think that's, that's all I want to uh, give them today, yeah, uh, Tom. Um, and so, friends, we are in some uncharted territory. Everyone is. You're not alone. If you feel undone, you might you might write in your journal, uh, like Lewis and Clark. Hey, we're all going to be good. Uh, the reality is, uh, these are some pretty treacherous mountains. They're going to be really, really tough. And uh, with it comes, I think, a lot of joy and a lot of just incredible memories. To to think about that, what that band of, you know, uh, friends went through, uh, to get there and what that was like to, to be there in Oregon and tell the stories to your grandkids. We're living in that moment Mm. now. And so we're going to have to learn, we're going to have to put up with some loss and uh, we're going to have to anchor ourselves and be resilient. Um, Mm. when the sabotage comes, not, not if, uh, but when it comes, when you try to lead, um, through this. And so I think that, uh, that in of itself, just to remind us that it's coming, uh, please don't try to hop back in your Mm. canoe and go back downstream and revert back to everything that you know to be true. Uh, but to have a posture of learning and ask what God, what are you up to? And uh, I love the way you phrase that. It's not what we can, what we can manufacture here or um, the, the genius minds we can put together in a room and figure this out. But God, what are you up to during this moment? Uh, you're always up to something and uh, we just need to join you. And what are you, what are you up to? And just have a lot of fun. Know that it's going to be hard. It's not going to be, it's not going to be easy, but there'll be some campfire moments. I think when you uh, look back on the day and, and say, man, that was, it was a, it was a, it was a tough hike tough hike today, but man, look at the views from here Mm -hmm. and aren't we glad we didn't, uh, we didn't give up. So uh, thank you, brother. Any other last thoughts you have for our audience? I I think the biggest thing I would say, you know, if if you're sitting here as a leader and you're listening to this and it resonates with you, um, one of the most powerful parts to remember about the core of discovery is that there was a core that Meriwether Lewis had a partner, William Clark. Matter of fact, um, one historian, Stephen Ambrose said, we know them as Lewis and Clark. Yeah. Like one name. Yeah. You can be in Lewiston, Idaho and not know it was named after Meriwether Lewis or Clark County, Kentucky, like I was doing this presentation and not know it was named after William wow. Clark. Wow. And Lewis and Clark ended up needing to actually turn to somebody else, Sacagawea, a teenage Native American nursing mother. It was really a core of people who needed to go through this process together. And if I know anything from working with leaders is leaders get lonely and they think they're supposed to outwork this alone. Mm -hmm. And my work is really about providing the support, the coaching, the consulting for you and your team so that you can be healthy as you go through it together. My, our, our company motto for our leadership consulting team is, but our job is to help faith leaders thrive as change leaders. And you can't do that by yourself. So good. So good. Well, brother, thank you. Um, thank you for all your work for all the churches. And then, you know, uh, for us specifically, you've been really, really helpful as we've been trying to navigate kind of our own, our own mountains, uh, through this time, first time, uh, for a global pandemic, uh, for us, we've had massive leadership, uh, change and you've been a, a real steady, 
anchoring uh, voice, and it really helped us kind of transition. And um, it was it was great. To, this is the first time many people had seen you live, and so when you walked in the room, there <laughs> people were giving you hugs like a, like a brother that was back, you know, uh, from being overseas for years. And there was a, the fond affections, even though it was the first time physically. Yeah. So thank you for the ways that you've served the broader church and then uh, ours. And uh, again, we'll link back to all uh, all your books and uh, give you some notes uh, in the uh, in the show notes. But thank you so much for being here, brother. You're really, welcome. Really grateful for you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments, you can always reach us at clp at watermark.org, clp at watermark.org. And we will talk to you again next time.